0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: What we're really concerned about is that the way council officers and executives are trying to control councillors by using the narrative of it's against our governance policy or it's against our media policy to let you speak, can then also be weaponised.
2: Shortly, we head to Victoria, where a push to enshrine codes of conduct for councillors has sparked concerns about free speech and transparency within local government. And swapping the header for the rock and roll tour bus, we meet the young WA farmers who've finished harvest and are now hitting the road for a
3: national tour with their band, the Young Mervs. The music industry is a very different one to farming. It's probably the other end of the spectrum on a lot of sort of elements and it's probably good to like come in with a country background, a sort of country aspect I guess because you're a bit more practical about things. I'm Alex Hyman and this is Australia Wide.
2: We start in northwest New South Wales, where a major coal seam gas development, declared critical by the state government, faces another legal challenge. Santos' proposed Narrabri gas project has been talked up by politicians on both sides as a solution to the nation's energy problems and was given the green light by the National Native Title Tribunal. But now the matter heads to the federal court after the Gomeroy people appealed the decision to permit the project. Patrick Bell has the story.
4: What do we want? When do we want it? Now. How will we get
5: it? Yeah. How will we get
6: it? The Gomoroi people say they now declared war it. on Santos many years ago. Now they're entering a new battle in their bid to block the development of 850 gas wells in the Pilliga region. The troops rallied at the weekend at Coonabarabran on the southern fringe of the Pilliga. Gomoroi woman Deborah Briggs travelled from Narrabri almost two hours away.
4: Piligir Forest is culturally, traditionally the Gomoroi Warriors training ground. Uh, We've always known about the waters beneath in the Artesian Basin, without our pristine waters beneath our feet we don't have a future. It's probably the cleanest water that you can find in the whole world. Uh, It's really important that we keep it as is.
6: The Gomoroi are regrouping after a recent setback. They ended up facing off against Santos in the National Native Title Tribunal and lost. The Tribunal found the public benefit of the Narrabri gas project outweighed the environmental concerns of the traditional owners. Undeterred, they've appealed to the Federal Court. Gomoroi woman Sue Ellen Ty says they're hanging on to that ray of hope.
4: To be honest, I have more faith in the federal court system than I do have in the National Native Title Tribunal. While I did hold hope, and many of us in the Gomoroi community and even, you know, broader communities hoped for a better outcome, we were not surprised. Well, I was not surprised when it happened. I was still gut-wrenched by it, but in the federal court, we've got a better chance of
6: success. In a statement, a Santos spokesperson said it respects the appeal process but won't comment on matters before a court. It's not known how long that court process might take or whether it could push back the company's timeline. But Santos has also had a win in recent days. The New South Wales government has cleared the way for it to do surveys and testing for its proposed pipeline to actually get the gas from Narrabri to the domestic market. It means Santos will have access to affected properties along the route, even if the landholders object.
4: Well, we found out from an article in The Australian, first up.
6: Anne McGowan owns property near Singleton in the Hunter region and is one of the affected landholders. She says she was more upset at the communication than the decision itself.
4: I would say, firstly, shock that this has been handled in this way, and secondly, anger, and that's just putting it mildly. Total, total disrespect for
7: the landholders.
6: The Deputy Premier, Paul Toole, conceded today it could have been handled differently.
7: Yeah, look, I can understand that those uh, our landholders are upset, but I also would expect that Santos uh, takes that into consideration when they go onto people's properties. I would expect them to take every measure in contacting those property owners uh, to ensure that they are talking with them Uh, before they go onto their land and that's so important when you're looking at things around biosecurity, when you're talking around that collaboration and I would expect Santos to do that.
6: Santos has 18 months to complete its testing before it then decides whether to apply for a pipeline licence. That and the fresh legal challenge are among a range of moving parts to this project. Business groups in the region wish it could start almost immediately, pointing to the potential for new jobs diversifying the local economy during dry times. But with the number of unresolved questions, that wish is unlikely to come true.
2: Patrick Bell reporting there. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. And you are with me, Alex Hyman. It's great to have your company. Let's head to Victoria now. In 2020, the state's Local Government Act brought a fresh emphasis on governance rules and councillor codes of conduct. It came in response to a number of stories of councillors behaving badly. But this push to enshrine codes of conduct for councillors has sparked fresh concerns about free speech and transparency within local government. Rio Davis has this story. As
8: Victorians experienced their first COVID-19 lockdowns in early 2020, another radical change swept through the local government scene. The introduction of the new Local Government Act was the first major legislative overhaul in the sector in 30 years and controversially made councillor codes of conduct mandatory. While the mayor has always been the legislated spokesperson for council matters, the new approach to governance saw councils across the state making centrally Controlled media policies more formal. Local government consultant and former council CEO Chris Eddy says councils are keenly attuned to the reputational risks presented by local media. In his podcast Local Government News Roundup, he's found there's also potential risks involved with mayors trying to convey technical or emergency information.
5: There's always a risk of that nature and it's up to each council to determine how it's going to address those issues. Quite obviously, a mayor or a councillor cannot be expected to be a the minute detail of every issue. So often there will be a need for people at an officer level, whether that be the CEO or director level, or even a subject matter expert, as you say, from within the organisation to provide further information. Generally, a council's media policy would allow that type of thing to happen under certain circumstances. But as I said before, it's really down to each individual council as to how they're going to manage those issues and how prescriptive, I guess, they're going to want to be in their media policy in relation to those issues.
8: In the remote West Wimmera Shire Council, the CEO was recently granted powers to refuse interviews on the basis that they might embarrass or humiliate the council. Mr Eddy says it's an extreme example of council media policies trying to mitigate reputation risks.
5: To be honest, I've not seen that very often. Uh, That's possibly at one end of the spectrum. That's, again, the choice of that individual council about how they're going to deal with the risk. And I I imagine there's some other issues at play there. Often, Rio, these things have political elements involved, depending on the appetite or the position of the mayor and the councillors.
8: But ratepayers aren't convinced that media policies promote transparency and robust debate. Ratepayers Victoria Vice President Dean Hurlston believes the ability for councillors to speak freely should not be open to politicisation.
1: What we're really concerned about is that the way council officers and executives are trying to control councillors by using the narrative of it's against our governance policy or it's against our media policy to let you speak, can then also be weaponised. And it can be weaponised against councillors who hold dissenting or different views. That is really, really unacceptable. Uh, And it's really the tail wagging the dog. It is not for council staff to ever seek to limit or control what a councillor says in public. It is absolutely an elected councillor's right to say whatever they feel on an issue. I mean, could you imagine in state or federal politics, the public servants controlling what politicians said? It absolutely wouldn't happen.
8: But whether a councillor can be formally punished for breaking media policy is yet to be tested under the new Act. Because each council has written its policies differently and implemented them in different ways, any findings from test cases may not be transferable to other councils. Chris Eddy also thinks the boundaries of media policies are more likely to be contested as councillors eye next year's elections.
5: The media issues certainly will start to play out more as particularly those councillors who are wanting to be re-elected want to get their time in the sun, some would say. At the end of this year, there might be some interesting machinations around councils about the mayoralty for the final year, because if I can be blunt, the the prize, the mayoralty prize is that last year before an election because of the profile that the mayor gets as opposed to the rest of the council. So I'd be looking towards the end of this year for some of those issues to be playing out perhaps more publicly than they normally
2: would. That was local government consultant Chris Eddy ending that story from Rio Davis. Sugarcane farmers in North Queensland, in the North Queensland town of Ingham, have a literal rat race on their hands as native rodent populations explode and decimate valuable crops. Perfect breeding conditions have seen populations skyrocket into their millions, and now farmers are scrambling to save sugarcane fields from the rat plague, Lucy Cooper reports.
9: Native rat populations are booming in North Queensland. Just over an hour north of Townsville lies Ingham the heart of the sugar cane industry. Local cane farmer Greg Keller feels hopeless as the rat populations, now in its millions, decimate paddock after
1: paddock. You know, the, the rat damage is evident. When you look through the crop, you can see through the crop, see what the rat damage has done there. Um, the crop should look like that, but sadly it's all on the ground and it's been rat chewed. They'll chew the crop, uh, you know, 18 inches off the ground like so, and then the crop falls over and they may nibble another bit, but. Sometimes then they'll go and find a new host, and they'll they'll climb that stick and start to eat that stick as well. So they decimate a crop very very quickly.
9: It's not just the presence of the rats that is terrifying, but what they do to the sugar quality.
1: So that's the evidence of the rat damage inside here. So you can see where they've climbed the stalks and had a had a chew there. And um, sadly, this particular piece of cane's finished. It's uh, it's starting to rot from the inside there. So that'll that'll go. Um, that'll have a funny smell. It'll go to. Like sour and the sugar content of that cane's basically done, it's finished.
9: Farmers have never seen rat populations so high. Lawrence Bella, the manager at Herbert Cane Productivity Services, says it's all thanks to ideal conditions over the last two years.
7: That crop's uh, flat on the ground, so a lot of those ground rats and climbing rats are actually in the crop right now. We've had an ideal season probably the last two years. We haven't had a wet season, so they haven't drowned in their burrows and haven't frozen out in the in the cold rains. So we've had the ideal uh, wet seasons for the last two years to see rat numbers start to increase. With the lodge crop, we've got a heap of weeds now starting to merge through the, the canopy. And so rats need protein to actually start to have their young and come in a season.
9: With millions of rats in the fields, Lawrence de Bella says it's hard to keep up with their breeding cycles.
7: Breeding pair in 12 months can have 460 offspring roughly. So those numbers can increase very rapidly. And every couple of weeks they're having a new litter of of mice. So that's the issue we're trying to deal with now is that recurrence of more and more and more.
9: It's an issue across the region which had devastating repercussions on what was already a very tough season. Chris Bosworth, chairman of Cane Growers Herbert River, says entire crops have been wiped out.
4: Rat plague is like, again, I've never seen it so bad. It's uh, district-wide and there are some paddocks that growers elected not to cut because they didn't think... Well, they were sure the CCS wouldn't get through above seven, so they wouldn't get paid for it. And the rats are just decimating it. But um, in this district, we do have a permit to aerial rat bait, and growers will certainly, when the weather improves, will be probably taking up that option to try to control them because... I've seen some paddocks that are completely
7: destroyed.
9: As the crop disappears before his eyes, Mr DeBella is hoping approved aerial baiting will be the saving grace.
7: They're a native animal, so we've had to apply for a um, permit with, with Queensland government um, because we're trying to manage a native species. We'll have to report back to government uh, every three months and annually on what we've done. So we've actually got to tell them how many rats that we've, we've killed in the process and um, where we're we doing aerial baiting, we have to provide the GPS tracks to show where the baits have actually been employed.
2: Lawrence Debella, ending that report from Lucy Cooper. Let's stay in Queensland. Many families have an interesting story that becomes legend. In Wayne Kerrick's home, the story was that there was a cannon buried in the backyard of the family's central Queensland house. But it took 70 years to prove whether the legend was true. Our reporter Michelle Gately
10: with this story from Rockhampton. I can still remember on a few occasions walking around the yard and he pointing to that exact that area and said, yeah, that's where the cannon is, and just threw it out nonchalantly, yeah, as you do. So I've always sort of like grew up with this cannon in the back of my mind and, you know, it brings you back to being a kid again.
11: Wayne Kerrisk knew this wasn't just an exaggeration from his dad, Dick. His dad had built the house in Rockhampton back in the 1950s, and he'd help some workers roll the cannon into a trench they dug in the backyard. But it remained legend until a few weeks ago when a group of mates decided they'd make a day of it.
10: Oh, they suggested, "What? hold it, no, you've got a cannon in the yard. Oh, let's dig it up. Let's have a cannon party. Oh, so it just blew up from there we initially started digging we hit it straight away so that wasn't a problem but the thing that got us was the actual size of it when it first looked i thought you know is this a ceramic pipe or something like that we were not expecting anything on that that size not like a three meter long cannon yeah that was quite sort of blew our minds off out a a little bit that's certainly a cannon yes yeah (laughs) And it was one of those things I always wanted to see whether it's there, etc, etc, which which naturally it was. As soon as you start talking cannons, you bring out the little boy in you, yeah. So we're all like oh, yeah, yeah.
11: <laughs> so that was one mystery solved. There was indeed a cast iron cannon buried in the garden. But how did it end up in central Queensland? That's where Rockhampton amateur historian Anne Gaskell comes in. She believes Mr Keresk has found the first of Rockhampton's one o'clock guns.
4: I've been researching it to find out how it started in Rockhampton and as much as I could find out about it and I have found that there was four one o'clock guns but the one that has been found I'm pretty sure is the actual first one because it was a big gun and the other three were all brass guns.
11: Before we go any further, we better find out a little bit more about the One O'Clock Gun, a maritime practice dating back to the mid-1800s. And for that, we need to head down the coast to Newcastle in New South Wales, where a replica time gun still fires daily at Fort Scratchley. Frank Carter from the Fort Scratchley Historical Society explains the origins of the time gun. In
1: every major shipping port, around the world, you would have found a building with a time ball on it. The idea was that at one o'clock, that ball would go up into the air so all the ships could see it, and then dead on one o'clock would drop, and that allowed the ships to reset their onboard chronometers. Now, what happened, again, we believe in Edinburgh, because the weather was often so bad, the ships could not see the time ball. So they introduced the concept of one o'clock, the time ball would drop, and the gun would fire. So the ships in the harbour, if they couldn't see the time ball, they would hear the gun.
11: Now back to central Queensland. Rockhampton was a thriving port until the mid 20th century, but it appears that's not why the city got a time gun. Ms. Gaskell explains.
4: Because of Rockhampton at the time, back in the early 1860s, didn't have a town clock, we had a, uh, a new bank manager come to town, a Mr. Robert White, and he started firing this clock at 1 o'clock so that the people of Rockhampton could set their clocks. And he fired it for a couple of months, paying for the gunpowder out of his own pocket until the council decided that they would pay for the gunpowder. It wasn't cheap because it was a big gun and it used a lot of gunpowder. He fired that gun for a bit over four years. And then in March 1896, he was leaving Rockhampton. He handed the gun over to the Rockhampton Municipal Council. A couple of months later, in 1869, the council decided they would purchase a new brass cannon.
11: Those brass cannons used half the powder of the old cast iron one. And there were two more brass cannons over the years until 1894, when a clock was installed in the city centre. Somehow, the original cast iron cannon ended up languishing in the scrap heap at a South Rockhampton quarry until it was found in the 1930s. Now, there's no records of what happened next until Mr Carisk Senior says he rolled it into a trench on his property in the early 1950s.
4: We will probably never know why it ended up in the backyard because the gentleman that put it in the backyard, is no longer with us.
11: The shovels are down now and Mr Carisk is waiting to see if Rockhampton Regional Council will help excavate the heavy artefact. He's hoping the cannon can be restored and displayed, which will give the mates another excuse for a party.
10: Let's face it, it's pretty rare that you get a sort of three meter cannon in your yard and they have an excuse for a cannon party. That's Wayne Kerrisk ending that story from Michelle Gately.
2: And finally on Australia Wide, long days spent harvesting in the Australian summer might seem a world away from sweaty pub gigs in capital cities, but not for one pair of farmers from southern WA. David House and Henry Carrington Jones grew up on their family farms in Kojanup. It's also where their indie rock band, the Old Mervs, was conceived. Instead of taking a well-earned break at the end of harvest, they're hitting the road and making the most of their ride rising popularity, swapping the header for the tour bus. Our reporter Sophie Johnson has this story.
0: Having just finished harvest on their family properties near Cojanup in WA's Great Southern, David House and Henry Carrington Jones are trading the header for the stage. They've just kicked off a national tour with their band, Old Mervs. The duo find balance in work life on the farm to playing live gigs and wouldn't have it any other way?
12: to performance. It kind of literally went from a paddock. Like we were both in Coogee, up doing a harvest in about 2016, and then we went back to Henry's Donga and just sort of set up some gear and started jamming, and then now we're
3: still still doing it. Yeah, it was it was an odd one. Like I played in bands through school and stuff with mates, like similar sort of music and. Dave was interested in music as well and we'd sort of every now and then at school we'd mucked around together like playing and then um we kind of just had yeah rained out and harvest one day and we're like oh let's set like the old drum set up that was at home up and in the music room we just started like drinking beer basically and playing and like mucking around and then it sort of like was fun so we just kept doing it.
0: So how much would you say your farming upbringing has influenced to where you are now?
3: Probably just
12: so I didn't have to farm would be the inspiration. Oh, <laughs> I'm geez, joking. That's harsh. I'd just tell uh, Dad that
3: to annoy him. Yeah, I'd say I'd say character-wise, like big time. It's yeah. um like the music industry is a very different one to farming. It's probably the other end of the spectrum on a lot of sort of elements, and it's probably good to like come in with a country background because you're a bit more practical about things, and yeah, you sort of there to get the job done, and nothing's a problem. Sort of attitude and try and be good people, I guess.
0: How do you manage or balance music and helping your family out on the farm?
12: We've really only just started getting into it. So we were just always pretty much just working and then we'd go up to Perth on the weekends and gig or go up and practice or write. So now it will be probably a bit hard. I think a bit less time
3: on the farm these days. But, yeah, it was pretty easy at the start. Having folks that, like, were like happy about what we're doing so they would be keen for us to go and do it and take some work off or whatever yeah so that helped big time at the start that's probably why we were able to do it really.
0: Is this something you guys see yourself doing for a while doing music but also still balancing a bit of farm life?
12: Definitely we had a chat the other day and we're like every summer it'd be nice to sort of at least get two weeks off or like three just to go and do Harvest because it's just pretty important when you're touring and you're just always at a pub and always doing that sort of carry on. Going back and doing a bit of work is is really helpful for the brain. Yeah good, I think.
3: yeah, good balance. Just doing static tasks like when you're touring, it's just so much stimulation. You're always on the road, like new hotels, like new planes. You're excited about getting on a plane, and um, then yeah, before you know it, you're at sound check at the pub at 2 2 p.m. and they're offering you beers, and you, yeah, then it's 12 a.m. and then you're yeah, hopping into bed and you wake up and it's the same sort of thing again. So coming back to the farm is like. I think it's a real good thing to just go back and chill out.
0: And how was harvest?
3: And you yeah. guys had it. You had an interesting finish. Oh, we had an absolute shocker of a harvest, to be honest. Dad's a bit too scared to upgrade on the header front, so we were running an old, older girl, and or two actually. One was an old, old one, and they both broke down by the end. So we actually had contractors come in to take the uh, pain off in the last three or four days, which was um, good. So it was interesting, but it went well yield-wise and that. So or well enough we are happy so yeah it was good good to get it done
0: and to go from that sort of situation to on stage with people singing the words to your songs was that a bit of a good way to finish harvest
12: it's a good way to start the year for sure like finish harvest and then you sort of get out of that Like you say you're like going back and working and then when you've got a tour coming up it's pretty exciting so it's it's kind of a double-edged
3: sword really
0: would you rather be singing or shearing sheep singing. If
3: I could shear sheep, I would like. I'd definitely rather be a sure, shearer. I actually wouldn't mind like a bit, bit of coin in it. Get, yeah, and I'd have room. a much, I'd have oh, a yeah. much better physique as well, which I wouldn't mind. Look yeah. like a big, big tank. Good. Don't know. We'd bust my back up though. Yeah. Somebody.
2: Good luck to them as they head out on tour. That's David House and Henry Carrington Jones from WA band Old Mervs. Also, some handy farmers by the sounds. They're speaking with Sophie Johnson. And that is Australia Wide for this Wednesday. I'm Alex Hyman. I'll be back again with you tomorrow. Have a wonderful evening. Cheerio. You've been listening to an ABC podcast.